Uh, we are in a series going through the book of Daniel. If it's your first week here, uh, this is a great book in the Old Testament that talks about uh, the, the time when God's people, the Jewish people, were taken from their homeland and they were taken into exile, into the kingdom, into the empire of Babylon. And the question that we're asking is really, how do I stay faithful in exile? How do I stay faithful in a culture, in a world that's not my home? These people were stripped away from their home with its beliefs, values, practices, and are now living and trying to figure out life in a new culture with different gods, with different rules, with different values, with different beliefs, where they are now the, the religious minority. And they are having to ask the questions that we have to ask in a very similar situation, which is, how do I stay faithful? How do I stay faithful when the world around me isn't faithful? It's, it's easy to be faithful in this room. It's easy to be faithful right here, but how do I stay faithful in a world that doesn't share the beliefs, values, and practices of our God? How do I stay faithful? And, and what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be faithful when you live in a culture that is hostile or, in, or different to the beliefs that we have? These were the things that they had to figure out, and this book is written to give strength to God's people. It's written to give guidance to God's people to answer some of these questions. And it's, it's difficult for them and difficult for us. It's hard when you live in exile for many different reasons, but one of the reasons is because as it looks like to them that their God in some way has been defeated, it's easy to develop a practical atheism to their God, to our God. If you are taken from your home, if you're taken from your community where God rules and reigns and the temple is the center of worship and God's law is the center of, of living and feasts and festivals and culture and values is all there and now that's all stripped away and it's burned to the ground and you're in a different place, it's easy to develop a practical atheism that says, I don't really even know if this God has power. He's kind of lost. It's easy in exile for us to develop a practical atheism, to just say, where is God? And just kind of get on with our lives. Or secondly, it was hard for them and hard for us to just adopt the gods that were in that culture. It's easy to, instead of hanging on to your beliefs and values and practices that are different and set you apart, to instead adopt the gods that are around you. So for both of these reasons, it becomes very difficult in exile. And if you're a Christian, you're trying to navigate some of these things. And I know some of you maybe are not Christians or you're exploring faith or kind of unsure exactly where you are. That's, that's great. It's a, it's a great opportunity to see some of the challenges even of what faith is. And if you're a Christian, these are some of the things that we're trying to navigate. These are some of the questions that you ask or some of the things that you feel is what does it look like in a culture like this, to maintain a hope and a confidence in who God is? What does it look like to maintain a distinctiveness? What does it look like to either engage? How much should I engage? How much should I separate? How much should I fight back? How much should I fit in? How much do I do or not do? Some of these kinds of questions are the things that Christians have to wrestle with. What attitude should I have? How do I have courage? How do I maintain a confidence in who God is, even when there's chaos around us? Some of what we looked at last week. These are the things that this book helps us 
to explore. And you're probably asking or feeling some of these things as a Christian the longer that we live in this society. And each chapter kind of gives us a different angle on that. It speaks to a different way to strengthen our faith, to give us direction and guidance. And today, we're going to look at a very famous story. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Even if you're not a Christian, maybe you have heard of this story. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, maybe you've heard of them in the fiery furnace. This is kind of a medieval artwork, so it's, it's very famous, been around for a long time as a story that has helped the church. Sometimes it's looked at as a kid's story. I don't know if our kids uh, have looked at it yet, but it's uh, a kid's story that's kind of a famous thing of, uh, I think VeggieTales did something of Rack Shack and Benny. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, maybe some of you grew up and watched that. It's sometimes seen as a kid's story, sometimes seen as like an inspirational tale of just you can kind of stand up and fight for what you believe in. I saw this that I thought was kind of funny also, you know. So you've You've made it big time if you're, a, you know, if you're a meme now. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've, they've kind of made it now. But it's, it's uh, one of those famous stories that most of us have heard. It's one of those stories that because, and this is true with a lot of famous stories, whether that's kind of Noah's Ark or uh, Adam and Eve or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when it's kind of one of those famous stories, it's easy to actually miss a lot of the power in the story. And yet, it is one of the most important stories that we can use to explore what does it mean to be faithful in exile. And this question is what we're going to be looking at, and really this is what this story has to do. What does it look like to be faithful when there is cultural pressure to not be? How do you resist, and what does it look like when there is cultural pressure to not be faithful? What does it look like? So that's what we're going to explore today, starting with answering this question, just what is the pressure that we face in exile? We're not in exactly the same situation of exile. They were, no one's taken us as POWs or hostages away from, but we are living in a world that's not our ultimate home that doesn't share the values, beliefs, practices. So what does it look like? What pressure do we face in exile? Let's look at what happened with them. We'll read the first part of this story. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he builds this giant statue. No one's exactly, doesn't say exactly what the statue's made of. Maybe it's of himself. Maybe it's of one of their Babylonian gods. But it's something that represents the Babylonian empire and all of its greatness and all of its glory. And he sets up this statue and then invites everybody, all the different kind of rulers and managers, the satraps. I think, I don't know what office that is, but we need to bring it back. I want to introduce myself as the satrap. I think that's a cool name. And he invites all of these different people all to come together. It's big ceremony, big festival for the dedication of the statue. So the satraps, prefix, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded 
When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So they invite everybody. They have tons of different music. The zither, isn't that amazing? Even a zither. I don't know what that is, but they have all the music, all the people. And it even mentions specifically people of every tribe, tongue, because remember, Babylon has all these different nations that it has conquered, that it brings together in the Babylonian empire. Then it says, when all the people heard the sound, Oh, excuse me, I missed this. But whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Small consequence there. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship it will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews that you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you remember from the last story, uh, they were, Daniel had them appointed into this uh, governmental office. And these men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue that I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Well, we'll continue to read the story, but let's start exploring this. What pressure do we face in exile? Now, when we kind of read this story and we hear about Nebuchadnezzar and he builds this giant statue, 90 feet tall, we can kind of look at that and go, that seems really removed from our context. Probably most of us have not seen a giant statue erected in downtown Arvada and us just be like, oh no, I feel pressure to worship or what do I do? It can kind of feel removed from us and our context. But actually, if you think about it, always cultures have built statues that are intended to represent the values of that culture and to bring unity to that culture. Maybe you have seen this statue before. And I'm not saying that these are the same thing that you're supposed to fall down and worship, but this represents the same reason that cultures have always built statues to say, here's our values. We value liberty. We value freedom. We value kind of our, our history and what these people have done. Or in other places in the world, this is actually, uh, you may know this statue, David, uh, by Michelangelo, and it is a famous statue. Why, why was it built? To, to show Look, this is the ideal Renaissance person. It's, the Renaissance was this period where they were just saying, man, in all of his glory, he's amazing. And so they build a giant naked statue. In other places in the world, this is actually the tallest statue in the world. This is in India. It's actually called the Statue of Unity. It's ginormous. It makes Nebuchadnezzar's statue look like a little flea. 
And it is to represent unity. It's to represent, look how we are all one. It's one of their first prime ministers that helped to actually unite all of the separate places into India. This is in China, giant statue on a Buddhist temple, the second tallest statue in the world. So even though we kind of hear of this 90-foot statue being built and go, "Ah, that seems kind of weird, building statues is something that cultures have always done and continue to do to show here is what we as a culture are going to be united around. Here is what our values are. And especially in a place like Babylon and the Roman Empire, when you have these empires that took over large areas of land and countries with people from every nation and language, it was important to say, you might have kind of different beliefs and values that you have brought in to our empire, but this is what will bond us. This is what will unite us. This is what we will collectively share together that will define us. And here's really what this is saying. And this is where it gets to some of where we are today. Your beliefs are okay. Whatever you believe is fine, as long as it's held in private. But there are things publicly that we all need to agree upon. There are things collectively that if you want to be a functioning, valued part of this society, that you need to say you are fine with, you agree with, you bow down with. So even today, your Christianity, nobody really cares what your beliefs are if they're held in private. But as soon as your faith actually influences the way that you think and speak and act and live and vote and and make decisions on what is right and what is wrong in our culture, that becomes seen as not okay. This is the same thing that was happening in Babylon. Now, there's no statue, like I said, that's being built. Right? No statues being built in Arvada where we are as Christians called to fall down and worship it. There's no statue being built in downtown Denver that we are told you have to fall down and worship this. So what does it mean for us when we look at this? And it's actually a lot trickier because the pressure's not as direct. In some ways, if there was a statue, you would know who bowed, who didn't bow. Did I bow today? Did I not bow today? I heard the horn. I heard the zither. Did I bow? Did I not bow? It would be easier in a lot of ways. But the pressure on us today as God's people is a lot more indirect. There are still gods that are held up to worship. There are still gods that are held up to bow down to. But it's more indirect. Because what is a god? What is an idol? It is anything that we value more than the true god. It's anything that we build our life upon more than the true God. It's anything that is oftentimes a good thing that we make a God thing or an ultimate thing. It's something that we say, this matters, but now it's actually become something that we build our life on that's most important, that we highly value and prize and really can't live without. This is what idolatry is. This is the gods that we face the pressure of today. What pressure do we face in exile? It's not a statue. So if you read the story and just think that you have to wait for your moment when someone holds up a statue or kind of even in some countries puts a, a gun to your head or some sort of danger and says, are you a Christian, yes or no? If you think that that's what you have to wait for in order for this story to have a relevance into your life, probably the time will not come. But it speaks to a lot more than that. Because there are gods that we face a pressure to bow down to. 
There are gods that we face a pressure to build our life upon. And there's tons, but I want to share a few with you that I think are some of the most common gods that our culture pressures us to bow down to. One of them is simply people's approval, being liked, being valued, being respected, being admired, fitting in. If you think about what's hard for you about being a Christian, there's all sorts of specific issues that it might get attached to. It might get attached to your ethics around uh, sexuality. It might get attached to your uh, ethics around pro-life cause. It might get attached to all sorts of things that are there. But a lot of the pressure that we face is we want approval. A lot of the gods that we are encouraged to bow down to are, don't you want to fit in? Don't you want to be on the in crowd? Don't you want to be on the right side of history? Think about even the appeals that are made. Don't you want to be someone that is, that is doing it the right way, or do you want to be seen as judgmental, bigoted over here? The pressure that we face is to get people's approval, and that manifests in a million different ways. It manifests itself in the church. It manifests itself at your work. It manifests itself in your neighborhood. It manifests itself in many different places. But don't you feel a pressure to fit in with the culture around you? Don't you feel a pressure? Don't, isn't part of the cultural pressure we face to be one of the people, to be approved? That's true at school, it's true at work, it's true in most contexts, that where your Christianity puts you out of step with the culture, we feel a pressure to have approval, to not be offensive, to be liked. That's probably one of the most common things that you will face. Think about where you have, here, here's kind of an assessment question. Where have you hid what you believe? Where have you hid, maybe even identifying as a Christian? Where have you hid? Here are the things that I believe when asked about it. Where have you felt the need to downplay or water down? Where have you compromised in what you believe or what you value so that you can fit in? and not be seen as offensive, or bigoted, or intolerant, or whatever else it might be. Where is that? If you feel that, you're feeling the pressure to the God of approval. Another one I think we face often in our culture is the God of freedom. The God of freedom. And that, again, underlies so much that you can be who you want, that you can do what you want, that there shouldn't be any constraint upon you that you are free to live your life how you want, you're free to decide who you are and express who you are. We are very, like, let me just say a word and see, we'll do a little psychological test. Do you have a, this is like a Rorschach test, you know, whatever it's called, where you go, positive association, negative association. Here we go, authority. Ah, see, most of us go, oh, I don't like that. Why? Because we have felt the pressure and bowed down to the God of freedom. The word authority or the word leader, that hasn't historically been something that everybody has been repulsed by. It's not something even in other cultures in our world that people are, ugh. But freedom is one of the gods of our age. It's one of the gods of America that we often feel the pressure to fit in with and bow down to. If you feel that you want to direct your own life, that nobody can kind of tell you how to live, if you fear millennials, if you fear Gen Z mainly, 
maybe some boomers, but if you fear commitment, that is because we have felt the pressure of the God of freedom. It is such a value to us to not let anything else control our life in any way. How about fun? Even the God of fun. You know, when you go to different cities, it's interesting, if you go to different cities, and, uh, you know, I've, I'm from Portland and Seattle originally and then have been in Denver for about 10 years, and there's a lot of similarities between the cities. They all love beer. They all are really into outdoor activities, really into music. There's a lot of kind of superficial uh, similarities. But there's things at the heart that are actually a lot different. If you are in some cultures, they might ask you, what are you reading? That might be a typical question. What are you reading? If they really value education. I rarely get asked that in Denver. I don't know if I've ever been asked that. Uh, some cultures might ask you, where are you from? If they really value kind of your, your heritage and kind of where you came from. Some might ask you about your schooling and your education. They might ask you about your work. That might be kind of one of the first things. In Denver, you know what one of the first things people talk about and ask about? What did you do this weekend? What kind of activities are you into? What, what kind of hobbies do you do? What kind of sports do you do? What kind of trails do you like? Have you gotten, have you, are you going skiing this weekend? What are you up to? Those are oftentimes the questions that are asked in our culture here specifically. Now, I think that's true probably in America in some ways as a whole, but particularly in our Denver, Arvada culture, that might be some of what brought you out here. I've talked to many of you. It's like freaking Nebraska was boring, so I moved here so I could do something. No offense if you're from Nebraska. Or this place was just too freaking hot. You couldn't even go outside. So I want to move to Denver. So there's at least some lack of humidity or something that I can enjoy being outside. Fun is one of the gods of our culture here. And you know what that looks like? What that ends up happening is we make most of our decisions, or maybe that's unfair, but we make a lot of our decisions based on our fun. We make a lot of our money and our time and our gold decisions based on what kind of fun, what kind of pleasure, what kind of hobbies can I do? And so where do I live and what do I spend my time doing and what do I want to commit to or not commit to? Freedom might blend in with that. Is how much fun am I able to have? Who's going to be there? Who's, who's not going to be there? We might even just keep our weekend open and not kind of commit to certain things because we want to maximize how much fun we can have. Fun is one of the gods of our culture. A lot of times, our joy, our happiness is what leads us and guides us. So there's a lot of different things that are a lot trickier, I think, that this story helps us to clue in on. That if we just kind of read a story like this and go, where's the big giant statue being erected? I don't see one. I'm good. Then we actually miss. Our culture's gods look different. The things that our culture says, here's what you should build your life on. Here's what should be of most importance. Here's what you should value. Here's what you should spend time and money. Here's what your goals should be about. Our culture values various gods. And I've only named a few. But what do you feel a pressure towards? What, and when I say pressure towards, it might be internal pressure. It might be from people around you. It might be just as you're constantly bombarded with advertisements and things that you see that are trying to get you to a certain way of life. What pressure do you feel? Let me say this. If you don't feel the pressure, then you've already bowed down. If you actually say, I don't feel the pressure, what are you talking about? There's no pressure in this culture to conform to a different God. 
Well, that means you're not feeling a pressure because you're already kneeling. You've already given in. Because the three things that I mentioned, even just those, even though there's tons more, those three things control so much of our time, our money, our goals, our anxieties. They control a ton of it. And so if you don't feel the pressure of how do I resist that? How do I remain faithful when that's happening around me, when that's bubbling up inside of me? If you don't feel that pressure, it's probably because you've already bowed down. And so there's no pressure to feel. We feel a lot of pressure in exile to worship other gods that are not the true God. And then there's motivation to do so. If you bow down, there's reward that happens. If you bow down to being approved, you'll maybe have more friends. If you bow down to being approved, you might get promoted. If you bow down to being approved, you may never have to feel the pain of being judged and thought poorly of. If you bow down to fun, you might be able to have a lot of fun. You might be able to enjoy a lot of pieces of your life and never have to sacrifice. If you bow down to freedom, there's a, a good feeling of being totally in control of your life and being able to do whatever you want, say whatever you want, control your destiny. There's a good feeling of that. So there's a lot of reward that is offered. There's motivation. There's pressure and there's motivation. And there's motivation positively. And then in this story, there's motivation negatively as well. If you do not bow down, there are consequences. And I want to show you something. This is, uh, maybe some of you remember this from, I can't remember if it was middle school or elementary school, but the Code of Hammurabi. And it's an ancient code, actually older even than this story, probably a thousand years even earlier. And it has all of this writing on it. I won't take the time to translate Babylonian for you, but it's got all of this writing on it with all of these different laws. And the reason I want to show this to you is just so you can see, sometimes we read these stories and it feels like a children's story or it feels like a, a fantasy or a myth. But really, these are, his, even if they sound crazy and sound impossible, these are giving us historical facts of what actually happened. This is not Aesop's table, fables. These are true things. And in the Code of Hammurabi, some of the punishments that were listed out were, if a sister of a god open a tavern or enter a tavern to drink, then this woman shall be burned to death. I have no idea what a sister of a god is or why she can't go to the bar and get a drink. I don't know what that means. But the idea of being burned to death was a punishment that was constant, not constantly, frequently, at least a few different times, listed in the code of Hammurabi, which is the Babylonian code of law. Second, it says, if anyone be guilty of incest with his mother after his father, both shall be burned. Fair punishment for that one. I think that makes sense. And that is listed in the Code of Hammurabi. So the idea of being burned, I'm just showing that to you because it might feel like, oh, this is kind of a, a fantasy fable kind of thing of, oh, we'll burn you alive, this crazy thing. But it was actually a common practice in Babylon of one of the punishments that they used. And so there's pressure that we face. There's pressure that we face to bow down to various gods and there's motivation that is accompanied with it either reward or consequence. In this scene, the consequences are many. There's obviously the physical death, but think about the other things, the other consequences that there are. There's the, the kind of professional consequence where they would give up their jobs. They have these managerial positions in government. They're going to have professional consequences. 
They're going to have relational consequences. People and peers that, that, that they were kind of around in government and their coworkers would now think of them as not really wanting to associate. Oh yeah, those are the guys that are bucking against the trend. There are legal consequences. There's attack and slander consequences that they face where other people say they won't do what they're supposed to do. So there's a lot of different consequences that they face. I don't know what consequences that you face. I don't know what pressures that there are exactly to bow down to gods or what consequences you face. You may have faced some already. There might be career consequences or legal consequences or relational consequences when you don't bow down to the gods of our culture. So what pressures do we face? We face ultimately pressure to conform to various gods. At times, it's a moment like this. But really, even as we've been reading through Daniel, this is not just a moment. There's been multiple different scenes now, either the very first chapter where they're supposed to eat and drink of the king's meat and wine, and they refuse to do that. Daniel is showing us it's not just these moments, but it's really a lifestyle where you're going to be confronted over and over and over again through the years. This is probably a decade or more after that first scene where they'd refused to eat the, the meat and drink from the king's table. And so this is saying, you're going to be faced your whole life. It's not just these one moment gun to your head times. It's going to be a lifestyle where we should actually expect difficulty. We should expect if this world isn't ultimately my home with my beliefs, values, and practices, we should expect not just a moment of testing, but we should expect a lifestyle where we will have to resist the pressure to bow down and conform to other gods. Second thing that we want to look at is how do we respond to the pressure that we face in exile? We're going to be faced with stuff. How do we actually respond? What does it look like for us to respond when these things happen? And the first thing in this story that we'll see is that they show a respect. Let me read the next section. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God that we serve exists and he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king, but even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look how they respond. Respect. They, they state clearly what their position is. They state clearly what they're not going to do. But he is responding in this fury, and it says the expression on his face changes and rage, and he's angry and making threats and all. And they respond very cool, calm, collected. They say, we're not going to do this. We are going to do this. They don't say, your gods are stupid. and blah, blah. They, they, It's a very calm, even-keeled, confident posture. That's what we've seen in all three of the stories, by the way. It's a pattern that it's representing to us of part of the way that we respond to the pressures that we face in exile should always be led by this gracious respect. It's, O king, it's Daniel, last chapter, saying he responds with tact and discretion. It's asking permission. It's over and over again in all three stories that it's given to us so far, there is this respectful posture. There is none of this kind of braggadocious boasting or in your face. In fact, 
they probably weren't even there at the dedication of the statue. They didn't make some big show of it. We might think that they showed up with protest signs and saying, no, do not bow to the God. But they had to be told on by the people that were jealous of them, by the Chaldeans. So they probably weren't even there. They probably just said, okay, there's a dedication to an idol. We're not going there. They probably just removed themselves from the situation. It doesn't say that they made, a lot of times we see the image uh, in children's books of everybody kind of bowing down and them standing up. Maybe, but it doesn't actually say that. It says that they had to be told on by the Chaldeans that were jealous of them. They had to kind of be found out and caught, which would make sense. They probably wouldn't go if they know that this big ceremony is going to happen, which they know it's going to happen. Obviously, you don't build a statue like that overnight. You don't organize a bunch of musicians and all that overnight. So it's some big giant festival that's being planned. It makes sense that they would actually say, we're not going to that. There is a respectful posture that over and over and over again in these chapters is shown to us. Think about if the most intense disagreements that you have with those around you, or even just with our val- the values, the gods of our culture, what if the most intense disagreements that you care about the most, you actually said, I can handle that with respect. I can handle that with grace. I can handle that with tact and discretion. I don't know if that's normally what's true of the areas where we most disagree with. Usually the things that we're most passionate about, most disagree with, are flesh comes out and there's this kind of anger and boasting and self-righteousness instead of simply a calm, respectful resistance. That's what they show. That's what they've continually showed in Babylon. Calm, clear, and yet with honor. First, that's the first thing. Second thing is how we respond to the pressure that we face. Again, oftentimes we hear this story and think, okay, What does it teach us? How did they respond? What is it that we're supposed to kind of adopt or model? What is it that they did and what is it that we need to do in these situations? And a lot of times, we might say something like, well, what we need is boldness. What we need is courage. The way that they responded was they had this boldness, they had this courage to kind of stand up for what's right. Kind of. But that's not really the core of what's going on here. The core that's going on here isn't just boldness and courage or standing up for what's right or standing up for my rights or standing up for kind of just libertarian values of you can't tell me what to do, you can't control me, this is government overreach. That's not really what's going on here. It's not just a model of courage and boldness. Those words aren't even actually shown in the text. That's not what's actually being shown to us or represented to us. They are not just standing up for what they believe in or standing up for truth or having this kind of boldness for their rights and values. That's not what's happening. What's actually happening is worship. They say, here's why. There's a God that we serve. And they say, we will not serve your gods or worship your gods. It's not just a a model of boldness and courage. Sure, in some sense it is. That's shown, that's represented. But that's not, it's not a tale of be bold like they were bold. What it's showing is they worshiped God and they would not worship any other God. 
It wasn't just that they're standing up for their rights or standing up for what their beliefs are or standing up for uh, the ability to kind of not be told what to do. And I think sometimes, again, because our culture so values freedom that that seeps itself even into the church, that we think, actually, here's what matters. Don't tell me what to do. But what their value here was and the way they responded was actually worship. They said, what you're doing isn't some infringement on my rights. What you're doing is trying to get me to worship a God that I can't worship. You're trying to get me to serve a God that I can't serve. I worship only Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's actually the way that they respond to the pressure that they face in exile is worship. And here's what that means for them and what it should mean for us. God to them wasn't just kind of truth. wasn't just kind of some thing that they were brought up with, just part of their upbringing. wasn't just kind of uh, their belief system, like, what do you believe in? Do you believe in this, or do you believe in Yahweh? It wasn't just that. He was everything. He was everything. See, this is, this is more a tale of, is God everything to you, than it is about boldness. It's more a, a tale to instruct us in what happens when you worship God alone versus are you bold enough to fight back? It's more a story to help us see what really is at the core of your life. Is it really true that at the core of your life, you will bow only to the true God, that you worship only the true God? Now, again, bow and worship, some of that language makes us like, oh, okay, I don't, I, don't, I don't bow to anything. Is God really most important to you? Are you actually building your life on God? Reflected in your time, reflected in your goals, reflected in your money, reflected in your heart, where you are willing to actually say, I will identify with him, even when there is people trying to get me not to align with him and what he says. We were going through a kid's Bible yesterday with my family. And Jesus talks very similar, where he says, if you are ashamed of me, then when I return, I'll be ashamed of you. Which sounds really harsh. But what he's saying is, if you don't identify with me here and now, with me and my words, then when I return, you've already said that you don't identify with me, so I wouldn't identify with you. And what are the times that you feel embarrassed or ashamed to identify with Jesus? See, it's less about boldness and courage, though that's there, and more about what's the God that you actually worship? Who is the God that you worship? That's the question to ask. Listen, are you led by the gods of this world or by God? Are you, what, what's actually leading your life? What's actually controlling your life and your decisions? Is obedience the first thing that you think of when you're trying to make a decision? And the reason I say that is because for them, they knew that in the Ten Commandments, it said, you will not bow down to any other gods. You'll worship him alone. And because they worshiped him, obedience was first. They didn't have to even think about it. It wasn't really about courage and honor and my rights. It was, I worship God and I will obey him. Is that what controls your time, your money, your goals, your decisions? Is 
What does God say? Who is God to me? This is how we respond to the pressure that we face in our culture. It is a respect and yet a worship that controls all of our choices. This actually grounds us and allows us to be gracious and allows us to be confident and allows us to be bold and committed and devoted. Final question is, where did they get and where do we get the strength to respond like this? Where do we get a strength and a composure to be able to be gracious and yet at the same time worship our God alone? Where do we get it? Here's what it says about them. It says that they trusted God to rescue them and they trusted God to deliver them. And they trusted that in two different ways. Let me read the whole thing and then we'll look at these two ways. He gave orders, Nebuchadnezzar, to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes, were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, your servants, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of those men. Not a hair of their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives, here it is again, what led them to do this, rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. Maybe not quite exactly the heart of God, but, you know. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, final part of this is what gave them the strength to respond this way. And here's the two things. Nebuchadnezzar says it, and they say it as they're going into the flames. They trust that God can deliver them. They trust that God can rescue them. And that's true in two ways. First, they trusted his power to actually save them from the fire. He says, he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. This is a great confidence in God. They say, we know that he can save us. It doesn't matter how great your power is. King, you do have authority. You do have power. And the furnace is hot. It is dangerous. It can destroy. But we trust that God's power is greater. That's a great confidence in whatever it is that they are facing. 
And it's the confidence that you and I need. It's the strength that you and I need to resist the cultural pressures that we face. What impossible situation are you facing in your life? What situation in your life may be even connected to cultural pressure of approval and freedom and fun <clears throat> or other things? What cultural pressure do you face that seems impossible? This story and their trust said, we believe God has the power to rescue us. Do you believe that God does miracles? Do you believe that whatever is impossible in your life, where it feels like, man, if I don't fit in here, you don't know what's going to happen. If I don't get approval here, you don't know what's going to happen. If I don't pursue fun and joy, think about everything I would lose out on. Think about all the opportunities I would miss. Think about all the, the happiness I would miss. If I don't pursue freedom and think about, man, my life would be such a wreck and I wouldn't be able to sleep at night and I couldn't live in that kind of way. He says, we believe that God can deliver. We believe that God has power. I don't know what impossible situation you face. It might be connected to some of these things. It might be other things. But this story tells us, and the strength that they had was, God can do miracles. And then second, and maybe this is something that most of us need to hear, is he is powerful, but he's also good. They say here, even if he does not rescue us, we will not serve your gods or worship. What does that mean? That means they trusted in his power to deliver them. They knew he was powerful, more powerful than the king, more powerful than the furnace. But they also believed he was good. Meaning if he doesn't, if he doesn't, we're still not gonna do it. Why? Why wouldn't you in that moment, if he didn't deliver you, why wouldn't you in that moment then say, Never mind, take us out of the fire. Quick, we'll bow down. Why wouldn't you in that moment change if, if he couldn't deliver you? They say, even if he doesn't, we're still not gonna worship and serve your gods because we know he's good. We know he is best. We know that if he doesn't deliver us, he must have some reason. He must be wise enough and good enough in our life that he's not removing us from the situation. Listen, sometimes God uses his power to deliver you out of something, and he can, and you should pray for that. You should ask God to do the impossible in your life. I, I don't know if you've ever seen that Muhammad Ali poster, and it says, impossible is nothing instead of nothing is impossible. I love that because it says, impossible, pa, nothing to Muhammad Ali. Well, kind of. I bet if you threw him in a furnace, he'd burn, but for, for, for God, that's true. Impossible is nothing. And so we should take the situations that feel most impossible and say, God, use your power here and ask him. And yet, the same is true. We should say, even if he doesn't, I know he's good. And so I'm still not gonna bow down. I know he's good. I know that he is for me. I know that if he doesn't deliver, there's gotta be a greater reason, a greater wisdom, a greater love that he's exercising that I can't understand. That's what strengthened them. And then, in the middle of the fire, he shows up. Now, some people think that this is what's called a Christophany, which means an appearance of Christ before his physical incarnation. And sometimes there's some times throughout the Old Testament that people think that that refers to Jesus. Maybe. 
Or it might have just been an angel. We don't know. But either way, it's God's presence showing up for them in the middle. And you know what's cool? He didn't have to do that. He could have just preserved them and no fire touched them. He could have just transported them out of the fire and then they're like, where'd they go? And they're just chilling at home with bonbons or something. There's, there's all sorts of, with hummus, I don't know what they eat over there. Uh, there's all sorts of things that they could have done. But instead, he shows up in the middle of the fire with them. Again, to say, I'm with you. I love you. I'm for you. In the middle of the fire, I'm with you. See, the strength that they had to respond was they believed that God could deliver with his power and they believed that God could deliver with his goodness. For them, it was this miracle. Sometimes in our life, it will be that. Sometimes it won't be. It'll be that we end up burning. It'll be that we end up feeling the pain and the suffering. The Bible talks about this fire language. Peter says that you are suffering the fiery trial that tests your faith and refines it. So that does happen. But the promise is that God will be with us in the middle of it. And that he, there's some goodness of his and some wisdom of his that is allowing us to experience this, even if we don't understand. There's a trust in him. So here's the final thing I want you to think about. If, here's the question that, here's the question that uh, they said. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us. So here's the question I want to ask you. If the God that you serve, if you're a Christian, if the God you serve exists, what does that mean for your life? If the God that you say that you serve, if the God that you worship here on Sundays, if the God that you say that you believe in, if the God that you, if the God you serve exists, what does it mean for the situations you're facing? If the God you serve exists, what does it mean for the cultural pressures that you face? This might be a comfort and it might be a call into action. If the God you serve exists, what does that mean for how you choose to live your life and the choices that you make and the decisions that you make and what you're even doing with your life? If the God you serve exists, what does it mean for the suffering that you're experiencing? If the God you serve, which, you know, we could add all sorts of things of what that means. If the God we serve, what did they believe? If the God of love that you believe in exists, what does that mean for your life? If the God of wisdom exists, what does that mean? If the God that gives you all of his approval exists, what does that mean when you face the pressures of approval around you? If the God of all joy and goodness exists, what does that mean when we try to grasp so hard at joy and fun and happiness? If the God of all authority and provision exists, what does that mean when we try so hard to grasp at freedom? If the God of creation exists, what does that mean when we try to define ourselves and carve out our own destiny? If the God that we say that we believe in exists, if the God that we serve exists, what does it mean for you? That's a question that should propel us towards action and also comfort us when we are struggling in a time like this. So we face cultural pressure all the time in exile. I don't know the particular pressures that you are facing or that you will face, but this story helps us see it is a moment 
but it's also a life. It's a current that exists. How do we face these with faithfulness? How do you respond to the cultural pressure around you with faithfulness? And here's, here's a line I've said multiple times, and I'll keep saying it, and I want you to just kind of keep this as sort of the phrase for the series. It's that in order to be faithful, we must be full of faith. That's what it means. In order to be faithful to God, we must be full of faith, which means we must see who he is and know who he is. Last week, it was they trusted in God's sovereignty and his power and his control. This week, it's his ability to rescue either from something with his power or rescue through something in the middle of it with his goodness and his presence. This has been what we need to see over and over again. To be faithful, we need to be full of faith. They saw something of God. We actually get to see something of him greater. And we're gonna take communion in just a moment. If you, if, you, uh, if you didn't grab a little cup on the way in, you can grab one of those. Communion's a time where Christians remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And listen, they saw, they knew something of God. They were full of faith. We see even more. Because you know what we get to see? We get to see Jesus. They, they knew who God was. They knew he could rescue. But we see that even more clearly. We can be actually more full of faith than they were. And thus more faithful. Because here's what we have in Jesus. They have a God that showed up in the middle of the fire with them. We have a God that actually in Jesus came and took on human flesh in the incarnation and lived through the fire his whole life. They have a God that rescued, they got to see a glimpse of God that rescued them from the fire. Jesus says when we are connected to him and receive the forgiveness of sin, he rescues us from a worse fire. He rescues us from the fire of God's judgment and eternal separation from him. They, they got to see God's deliverance from them from what would have been death. Jesus says, if you're connected to me, I'll rescue you from death even greater. There's a, there's a resurrection where you will live forever with me. And they got to experience the angel or whatever it was that came and said, I'm going to take you out of this fire and you'll be safe. But what Jesus did for us is actually let the fire consume him and was burned in our place. He substituted himself for us. They got to see God's mercy of deliverance, but we get to see God's mercy of deliverance greater. See, what I'm saying is they were full of faith, which led to their faithfulness. But we have a greater picture of faith. And the more that we see that, the more that we are able to resist whatever cultural pressures that we face, whatever gods that we are pressured to bow down to, and actually instead go, I'm living with faith in you. When we take communion, that's part of what we're remembering. We're filling our heart again with the faith of who he is. We sing songs to say, I'm remembering who you are again. And so take some time, pray, confess where you have bowed down to the gods around you. Confess where you have not resisted or maybe you've not been respectful in your resistance or where you have resisted, but it's really just been about your rights and not about, I worship God. Confess what needs to be confessed. And ask God to fill you with faith to see and know him in a greater way that would lead to a non-compromising life that worships him alone. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that you show us such a clear picture 
of your deliverance in this story, but give us an even clearer picture in Jesus. I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith, that we would know you and love you and trust you and live amidst all the pressures faithful to you. I pray this in your name, Jesus.